President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, goes Montana! He will fall in fire! Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting, and personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm Diane Christman, Senior Vice President and Chief Program Officer of the Cable Center. This season, we're exploring the many facets of innovation within the cable broadband industry. We're presenting brand new content as well as segments curated from the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. Thank you for tuning into the Cable Center's Hauser Oral History Series. Uh, You're about to hear a really interesting set of recollections from a really interesting person, Paul Kagan, who is a very well-known, possibly I could say legendary analyst and journalist who has covered this industry for a long time. And to sort of set up the story of Paul, um, I'm fortunate to be joined in studio with Jeff DeMond, who's a longtime cable industry executive and is the CEO of Vive Broadband. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me with you. Uh, interesting guy. What, when you think about Paul Kagan, and you've, I think, read his newsletters over time and sort of have a sense of, of who he is and what he's done, Jeff, how would you characterize the impact Paul Kagan had on the cable industry from a financing and an investment perspective? Well, going back to when I started uh, in 1985 and those years in the industry, Paul's uh, newsletters and other publications were the go-to source for data. This You couldn't just Google it, uh, you know, whatever you were looking for. Um, and there was really no other, as I recall it, no other real ready source uh, of reference material that people kind of all rallied around and, and relied on. I mean, expected it to be accurate mm-hmm. uh, and reliable, and they made decisions on it. So I would say um, it it had a, a pretty dramatic effect in some cases on the ability of operators seeking capital and banks seeking to provide capital to come together around sort of a common way to talk about and think about what cable is and does. And that... So he spoke to the investment crowd or community, but from an you've been a longtime CFO and now CEO of prominent cable companies. Did what role did his research and data and perhaps even guidance play in in running a cable company? Well, some of his publications were geared toward um, call it mergers and acquisitions activity. So. Uh, it was sort of the flash, somebody just got bought or somebody just got sold, and the pricing around that and the, the, the analysis, if you will, of how, that was, uh, how those valuations were arrived at and how buyers were thinking about uh, the industry and how to value a subscriber or a company. So I think it was instrumental in giving us a common language um, and, you know, again, sort of a source of data that we all sort of agreed that Uh, X percent of it was factual and knowable by Paul, and the rest was estimated and analyzed by Paul um, with, I think, increasing credibility over time so that you didn't really worry that much which part was fact and which part was analysis because it was Paul Kagan's view of of what was happening. And again, on the banking side, I mean, we, we couldn't have grown our businesses without those lenders being confident in what was being called, you know, reliable cash flow uh, to support their loans. So, again, I think Paul's publications gave them the ability to go to their um, internal committees, investment committees and whatnot, uh, and and give them sort of a third-party reliability box to check Mm -hmm. that, you know, this is what's happening in the industry, this is how valuations are being arrived at, this is the source uh, and consistency and leverageability uh, of cash flow that these loans are being, um, you know, based on. Definitely brought an, uh, an authoritative voice and uh, very much impacted the industry. Thanks, Jeff, for the, for the thoughts and observations. With no further ado, here's Paul Kagan. Paul F. Kagan, president of Paul Kagan & Associates, 
the real cable guru, the financial analyst that most Wall Street firms and most banks rely upon for information on cable television. And he has chronicled the financial history of cable television since 1969. In addition to many things, other things, Paul is a director of the National Cable Center and Museum and is a member of many, many financial analyst uh, societies. The commercial is that this oral history is made possible by a grant from the Gustav Hauser Foundation as part of the oral history program of the National Cable Center and Museum. Paul, to start with, give us a little thumbnail sketch of your uh, your background prior to getting into the industry. Well, I was in the uh, newspaper and radio business. I started out as a sports writer and uh, sports announcer and radio salesman. And uh, I, uh, I then migrated back to New York where I came from. And uh, after having called play-by-play for the Yankee farm team in Binghamton, New York, which is one of my early dreams, I decided I was not going to be Mel Allen or Kurt Gowdy, who were my heroes. Um, and I went back to New York and uh, went to work for CBS and, um, and I was a freelance sports writer uh, for the National Observer, and I uh, covered some uh, pretty interesting stories, like uh, Bill Bradley playing for Princeton in the Holiday Festival in New York uh, in 1965 when he scored about 56 points and the team lost because everybody else only scored about 20. <laughs> uh, and uh, they wouldn't let us in the locker room to interview the players because they were so broken up over the loss. Uh, but I remember that. Uh, transiting from sports then into the business world because I was working for CBS radio and in publicity and uh, getting very interested in in business and uh, after uh, being with CBS and RKO General when uh, they had the progressive rock station the first progressive rock station in the world uh, during the flower child year um, I decided I I wanted to uh, specialize in business and I had a concept for uh, uh, concentration of the financial side of the media, which I thought was very underserved at that point. So I got a job with E.F. Hutton as an analyst uh, specializing in broadcasting. And it was in 1968 when I was doing that that the cable industry had its first uh, public offerings. So I became a cable analyst because I was there. Specifically, you went into the cable uh, went in for the cable analysis. <clears throat> Why, why that? Was it because it was there and no one else was doing it? Well, in the beginning, there was the heaven, the earth, and distant signals. And uh, when I first started reading about cable in Broadcasting Magazine back in 1966, it was relegated to little articles way in the back of the book. And I happened to know, because of reading about it, that's when the only thing you could write about was Gerald equipment being sold. Uh, uh, at least that's the only thing they would say about it. And uh, uh, when I was reading about it, I realized there were about 4 million cable subscribers in those days, maybe even a little bit less. And I remember four being the number when I, when I started up in this field. Uh, I knew what the population was. Uh, there had to be, I think at that time, 60 million uh, households, 60 to 70 million households, and only 4 million had a lot of channels. Everybody else had seven or none. And I, was, I lived in New York, we had seven channels, and I knew that people who had cable had at least 12. And so uh, I recognized there was something wrong with that system, that the, the FCC had not licensed enough stations to satisfy everybody. That was uh, also at the time of the freeze, wasn't it? Oh yeah, there was, there was a freeze on, on uh, cable in big cities. It was, it was all economic interests that were, uh, vested interests that were lobbying the government to keep a limited number of channels so they could start a commercial broadcasting business and make it successful and make a lot of money. Primarily broadcasters? Uh, TV station licenses, yeah. And uh, and it was a perfectly good thing to do at the beginning because you wanted to be sure that they did have a head start. It's always been the nature of things is to give somebody a head start to be sure that there is a platform on which to build. But what happened with, with cable, it came along... Uh, um, uh, several years after the first stations began transmitting to bring those stations to people who had none. And, uh, you know, I often think of Moses coming down from the mountain with the tablets. And in those days, he was able to broadcast to the whole community just standing on a rock. 
But in, in, in modern times, the community was completely on the other side of the mountain. You had to bring the message up to the top and you had to bring it down into everybody's home with a cable. And it was an easy concept to understand. And, uh, and it was obvious to me that over time, most households in any country would have to have some mechanism for bringing in more signals than the over-the-air wavelengths could accommodate. And you saw that that early. I, I knew it. Uh, you know, it wasn't a matter of I, I, I didn't I didn't have a vision. It was just made total sense to me. It was a freedom of speech issue that you had to allow the public as many opportunities to listen and to watch as you could. And uh, and I and I just innately knew that this was going to happen. It was going to take time. And when I, I handed in my first report at EF Hutton on the first five public cable companies, and they looked at it and said, this, they don't make any money. How can we recommend the stocks? And I said, they're not going to make any money for at least five years. And little did I know how long it would take for them to make money. In some cases, they never made any money, but uh, on purpose. By design. <laughs> By design, yeah. But, uh, but I said, they're not going to make any money for at least five years because it's depreciation and it's uh, cash flow and it doesn't matter. And they said, we do not recommend stocks that have brackets on the bottom line. And they left me no choice but to start publishing my own newsletter on the subject. Do you remember your first story? Um, let's see. The, um, uh, the first story was probably uh, the uh, uh, story about uh, cable getting, well, it wasn't probably, I know for a fact. Uh, in October of 1969, uh, the first newsletter, I believe, was dated November 10th. In October, cable made the front page of the big city papers because the FCC ruled that cable had the right to originate its own programming. And this was an interesting thing because there was a commissioner from uh, Utah who, uh, and the only company who wanted to, um, uh, uh, who could supply programming, origination program equipment, was Telemation in Salt Lake City. So uh, the FCC approved uh, uh, that ruling and it didn't force cable operators into it but it encouraged them to buy cameras and uh, to, uh, uh, to have some kind of uh, programming. Actually, I think it did force them in. I think that was the whole idea. They had to buy the camera. But of course, they were showing uh, uh, clocks and thermometers. That was and, telemation. Yeah, that was uh, in, in October 1969. But it was an indication that cable was going to be somebody someday. You know, it could be uh, in the old on the waterfront line. It could be a contender. And, um, and it wasn't the, the avenue that was going to work, but it was like wake up, cable is here kind of thing. And I started my first letter at that time. That was the first story. But uh, I remember the second story almost better because um, it, uh, it was the first conference I ever went to about cable in uh, 1969. Well, I had been to the convention. But uh, the first seminar I ever attended was a practicing law institute meeting in the fall of 1969. And uh, Henry Geller was then um, the counsel to the FCC. And he was railing against cable uh, because he was always uh, uh, pro-broadcasting. And uh, he probably wouldn't say that today, but uh, he was the foe. There was always a foe in those days for the industry. And... Uh, he was uh, talking about uh, cable in its place and broadcasting in its place. And I got up and asked the question, I don't understand if this medium has such a capacity to get into people's homes with so many channels, uh, why shouldn't it be of interest to the largest corporations in the country? Why shouldn't the large retail companies, the, uh, the store chains, uh, be interested in using this medium as a way to augment its newspaper advertising, its radio advertising, its TV advertising. Nobody could answer the question. There was a problem with copyright at that point, too, whether we, we paid for copyright or not. Yeah. There were, there were, there were, there, well, there were, there were rules that people worried about. Government regulation was a major uh, part of that. The, uh, the real problem was financial. As I had had the problem at E.F. Hutton, the, the uh, uh, bottom lines weren't there. They couldn't make any money the way people knew money could be made. And, and people, large corporations, were afraid to acquire them or be interested in them because they didn't make a profit. So it would dilute their earnings and they didn't know what to do with it. And they had no idea that it was going to be 70 million households and, and how many channels and, and what a great opportunity it would be. They never got over that problem. 
But at that time, uh, CBS was already in it in Canada, and, and quite heavily and so, in Canada at that point. Well, the media, the, you know, the media always understood it, and at different times tried it, TV and newspapers, and, and uh, uh, that was it, was, it was always a media party. And ultimately, it was just a cable party because over the years, over the many years that followed, it was the original cable pioneering group that stayed with it and believed in it and made it happen. And it really wasn't what we see today, which is AT&T and Microsoft and, and others who validate it. That validation came very, very late in cable's life. Mainly with private uh, capital at uh, early stages. It was, it was private capital. And if, uh, it, uh, oddly enough, in, uh, until 1968, when the first companies went public, the, um, uh, the money came primarily from vendors, from equipment suppliers, and a small company called Economy Finance, which uh, was um, headed by Jim Ackerman. And uh, uh, Jim was the financier for the cable industry. And a cable operator would have to pay uh, five to seven or eight points above the prime rate in order to get his money, but he had such a confidence in his ability to penetrate the market and get subscribers that it was okay. It was what they call commercial finance, mm -hmm. and it still exists today, and it's, uh, today it's more called subordinated lending uh, but or preferred equity. Yeah, but you recognized the cash flow wasn't going to go to pay dividends, so it was going to pay off the loan. Right. It was, it was a leveraged business. It was very much like uh, 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 buying real estate, building a building. And, uh, and that's the way they were getting their money. In 1968, four companies went public. Teleprompter was already there, a merger of Teleprompter and H&B American. And then Cyprus and Cox and uh, uh, TVC, Al Stern's company, and then um, uh, Columbia Cable, Bob Rosencrantz, all came public in 1968. They raised in that year each between two and a half and seven and three quarter million dollars each which was then considered a big sum of money, especially for companies that didn't have any earnings. And they, they started the ball rolling. Uh, ATC went public in 1969. Um, uh, TCI went public in 1970. And um, then uh, uh, over time, uh, there were other companies, uh, Communications Properties, uh, I believe it was 1969 as well. And, and, and little by little, we had about a dozen uh, public cable companies, and that was the group I wrote about in the early days. Those were all pure plays at that point. Yes, right? absolutely. Oh yeah, and the only the only ones in cable. Yeah, there was no there was no thought that a company would have a cable subsidiary, and that that would be a cable company. I mean, they didn't mix. It was like oil and water because of the financial equation problem. It was kind of fun because it 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 left me a clear path to try to explain to everybody why they were doing this and how they were doing it. And I didn't have to worry about other divisions that, that complicated the issue. Where did you come up with the theory of cash flow and the uh, per subscriber basis? Well, I, I didn't come up with the theory. When I got into the industry, and, and I should tell you a story about the, the earliest things that, that occurred. In, in 1968, when I was at Hutton, I got calls from around the country, from brokers in Iowa and in Alabama, wherever Hutton had an office. And, uh, and they said, we hear there's a cable stock out. What do you know about it? That was, that was the, the only way it could happen in the beginning. So I had to call cable operators and talk to them. And, um, and in fact, uh, I, was, I had been talking to Monty Rifkin, who was in the process of forming ATC and with a, Bill Daniels. And a sophisticated financial man. Oh, yeah. They were, well, both Bill Daniels and, and, and Monty were real pioneers in, in cable finance. And, um, and I had been talking to uh, them just recently before I got a call um, uh, from a fellow who I, th I, I believe his name was Cy Goldbaum uh, in uh, Mississippi. And I remember it because it was so unusual to hear from a fellow named Cy Goldbaum in Mississippi. <laughs> and, um, uh, and he wanted to know if I knew anybody in the cable business he could talk to about selling his company. And uh, I told him I'm heading up to Boston to the convention, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, going to be seeing ATC and Monty Rifkin, which was a brand new name at that time. And uh, and he went to see him. And in fact, we all sat at lunch together. And uh, he ended up selling his system, I think, for $300 a subscriber, maybe less. Uh, Monty could remember the story better. And uh, the uh, uh, and and that's how it started. I also remember I didn't get a fee, but it wasn't anybody else's fault because I didn't ask for one. 
because I didn't even realize they were going to do the deal. Uh, they were just talking. You wouldn't make that mistake today. Uh, no, not today. <laughs> okay. But, um, but actually, I, d I made an early decision that Bill Daniels was the broker in the industry. Oh, and the other guys who came along, like uh, uh, CEA and, uh, and John Waller and the others. And I decided information was, uh, was my game. And, uh, <clears throat> and then I, uh, and, and, and so I began to follow the, the stocks and the economics of the field. The, um, uh, you know that Narragansett Capital played a big, big part yes. in the development of ATC and the under, underpinning of that stock. There were, there were venture capitalists who put up real money in those days. Um, they weren't famous. Uh, there weren't that many of them. But they got it started. And um, one thing that I was able to help accomplish was to call everybody's attention to a group, a stock group, that no one else seemed to ever want to write about. Uh, there were a number of uh, analysts in Wall Street who were following it. Dennis Leibowitz, who was then at Black and yeah. Company, and Coleman and Company, who went on to DLJ and uh, became uh, the leading analyst in the field. It was then joined by others uh, much later. But uh, there, there, was, there were analysts at the beginning, but the newspapers didn't want to write about it. The magazines didn't want to write about it. And nobody was keeping track of every company. They were all, they were all small. So they were below a lot of radar screens. And, um, and I was able to maintain a database at a time when a database was very much needed. And that's how the whole uh, game began. As, uh, as time wore on, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the situation went through changes <clears throat> when uh, uh, events outside the industry uh, came along in uh, usually uh, ec uh, hard economic times. Um, in... Um, uh, in 1970, there was uh, a market crash. Uh, in uh, 1974, there was a huge market crash. And uh, it, 1974 was the historic bottom, financially, the historic bottom forever of the cable industry. And this is something a lot of people did not pay enough attention to. Even when time. interest rates went up to 21% in, in 1980, that was... That was nothing compared to what happened in 1974. The cable industry was very young, financially. And when the lights went out in 74 over the oil crisis, mm -hmm. and you had to line up for gas in the middle of the night for an hour and a half to get, to get gas in your car, the, um, uh, the cable industry couldn't withstand that kind of tight money. Interest rates were uh, 12%, uh, the uh, Treasury bills, which was enormous at it that was. time. Actually, it still is today, but uh, we had all known 6%, but nobody ever heard of 12%. And at my uh, conference in 1974 in New York, Leonard Tao was one of the speakers. And I remember uh, clearly that he said, we cannot long survive. This country cannot long survive with interest rates at 12%. Yeah. Uh, but back in 74, companies went virtually bankrupt. And uh, TCI, uh, among them, had a terrible, terrible time because it was hugely leveraged. Uh, they had brought John Malone in to head up the company, I believe, in 73. Okay. And in 74, everyone was going down the tubes. And TCI, whose stock had gone from the IPO, was probably 16 or so, and the stock went to 37 in 1971-2 period. It fell to as low as 75 cents bit in 1974. And it was a disaster in the making. Um, the, I think the whole market cap of the company, you know, was only a couple of million dollars at the bottom of the market. Um, they began negotiating intensely their bank loans with the Bank of New York. The bank sure didn't want those systems. Well, it was, it was, it was scary for the bank. And John successfully, deftly negotiated a, a restructure that, um, that really to the bank looked like it was ironclad because they succeeded in getting the most cash flowing systems to support their loans. And they cut out from the herd everything else and said, you can do whatever you want with those. And they knew how to bring them around and eventually leverage them. And it was that um, uh, uh, bifurcated structure that enabled TCI to really grow and leverage the company while the bank was sitting with a certain number of systems that were providing the collateral for their loans. Without taking the loss on the other ones. The, uh, uh, yeah. The cash flow loss yeah, on the instead other of, ones. Instead of uh, squeezing them out of the business, the bank actually encouraged them to grow if they knew how. Was there any validity to the key story? 
the uh, uh, John Malone and throwing, keys. His, throwing his keys in. Well, uh, you know, whether it's a legend or not, yeah. I, my, my bet is he did it. I would uh, guess that probably uh, I, I think he threw his keys on the table and said, here, you take over the systems if you yeah. want. But uh, it, it worked out very, very well because he had the uh, financial engineering genius to know how to make all of that work. I will tell you that it was knowable in the end of 1974 that it was the bottom of the market. I determined uh, just from reading a lot of stuff, talking to a lot of people, watching the markets, uh, I concluded for my own purposes of trying to figure out where we were in life, that we were seeing as bad a market as we could possibly see. The long lines for gas in the middle of the night, the lights out in Times Square, among other places, mm -hmm. um, the, the companies near bankruptcy, uh, interest rates at 12%, it simply couldn't get any worse unless we were all going out of business. And I never believed that would happen. And it didn't happen. And the market turned around on a dime in January of 75. The actual deal Malone cut with the bank was in, I believe, February of 76. And, and it, the market had already turned around. But in 76, people were still worried about would the turnaround stick. And my conclusion was that we would never go back to late 74. But, but as you go back to that, to that era of, um, of 1979-80 when they started to give out the franchises, uh, you get a different kind of a climate uh, going on. Now, now all of a sudden cities heard that it was a good idea to have cable TV. And the franchises that were not ever awarded uh, were suddenly all coming up uh, to be given out. And uh, it, it was where we first began to see the, comp the competition to get the franchises that we began to see the pushing of the technology that has become such a major force in the business today. It was uh, in the seeking of the Atlanta franchise that cable casting of uh, Canada uh, decided to uh, tell the city of Atlanta they were going to promise 125 channels. And they ran into the financial difficulties of the 1982 economic crash. Uh, there were, um, that was a um, third world nation lending bank crisis. And uh, there were bankruptcies. And in August of 1982, the stock market came to a pretty good halt there for a while. And it was, it was uh, a very uh, volatile moment in history. And at that time, uh, the cable industry uh, couldn't sell any equity. I mean, nobody could. <laughs> Uh, they, uh, uh, the, the, the debt market had not developed yet. That was about to happen uh, right in there. It was beginning to happen right in there, which I'll get to in a second because it was so important to the cable industry. Uh, they were selling limited partnerships. Glenn Jones had started to sell a series of limited partnerships and, and others as well. And uh, the, the Canadian company had raised its money to build the Atlanta system from Drexel, Burnham, Lumbaire uh, through what were then called junk bonds, which were high yield notes that were sold by Mike Milken and his sales force at, at Drexel. And uh, the, uh, what was interesting is that they called them junk bonds at that time, and they later changed them to high yield, which sounded better. But uh, when Jim Ackerman had financed the industry in the first place, and he had gotten five, six, seven points over prime, 17, 18, 19% for your money, that was, in effect, a junk bond. It was a junk loan, but it was what we used to call a loan of uh, the lender of last resort. If you couldn't get the money from anybody, you could go to them, and they would, they were basically giving you something that looked like an equity investment because they were taking a, a percentage of the money above what a normal loan would be, and that, in effect, cut them in on the equity. And sometimes warrants also for and, and equity. Oh, yeah, or warrants, and, and Milken did the same thing, only he did it on a much more grand scale, and he ended up financing everybody in the media, Chuck Dolan and, and TCI and, and, um, uh, and, uh, and the Canadians to build Atlanta, and, and just a long list of, uh, of people who were building cable systems and other communications networks. And it was a brilliant financing move on Milken's part because it was an industry that had predictable cash flow. That was always a hallmark of cable. You knew people were going to pay month in and month out because they had to see their favorite programs. I mean, it was unthinkable that they couldn't see the sports events. So there was a, 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 a very uh, a proven cash flow record there. The uh, regular commercial banks, had first, uh, they, they had been there for a while. Alan Gary was a pioneer 
in getting bank financing for his systems. In the local markets. In, the, in his local markets. No. The large companies were not using banks because they had been able to go public and uh, they had enough cash flow that, um, and they always had financing from vendors and they had some banks as well, but it wasn't a major part of their lives. And uh, the, uh, so the banks were there, but in that 1982 crash, the banks were not there. And in fact, I think, and this is a very controversial idea, but there are a lot of people who have ideas on this. I'm not the only one. And, uh, and, and there are other people who disagree. Is that it, it was the bank crash of 1982 that spurred Congress to encourage the establishment of savings and loans and the expansion of savings and loan lending to, to uh, especially the real estate market. So the banks were not there. And it was in that, in that vacuum of capital where the SNLs weren't quite up to it yet and the banks weren't doing it at all, that Milken and Drexel stepped in to provide the old-fashioned high-yield lending. And the cable industry uh, used that very well to uh, grow and develop these new franchises through the middle 80s, which are otherwise a quiet kind of time in the U.S. economy. We recovered from the 82 crash, but 83, there was a bull market in 83, but it didn't last very long. 84 was a blank year. It was actually a declining year, but it wasn't a crash. It was just, nobody ever remembers 84. It, you get to 85, 86, and 87, leading up to the big bull market of 87, and you have some of cable's finest years, financed by junk bonds. Uh, by 1986, they were able to do public offerings, and Adelphia, Cablevision, and Century all went public in 1986. And the cable industry was uh, really now very firmly established with good financial sources of all kinds. Unfortunately, in um, the SNLs didn't work out. And as the SNL thing began to come apart, um, they, uh, uh, Washington was getting tremendous complaints against Milken and the takeovers that he had been engineering, and they began to investigate his activities. And that, that slowed Drexel down tremendously, and over 87, 88, and 89, uh, which were very good years for the cable industry, which was continuing to be financed uh, by these really great junk bonds, uh, all of which worked out very, very well for everyone. Um, uh, they, uh, uh, Drexel went down, and the government actually allowed them to go out of business, which was unheard of for a $5 billion institution. They just said, don't anybody give them any money. And, uh, and, they, uh, and, and, they, and they went away, and so did Mike Milken. We used to say whether it was true or not, that cable had never forfeited on a loan. No. Well, there were a couple of cable bankrupt situations. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the big franchise uh, 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 construction jobs in uh, uh, L.A. and uh, Atlanta were among those that had to be rescued. But uh, by and large, uh, cable lending has been as successful uh, on a percentage basis as any lending the banks have ever done. Uh, the, uh, I made the point about the Milken story because there's no question that the construction of the new franchises in the 1980s that were given out in 79, 80, 81 would never have happened if Milken and Drexel hadn't have been there because the equity markets weren't ready for it, the bank markets weren't ready for it, and there, there needed to be funding. And the cable industry has long said that money will find the right place to be invested. And we were it. And, and that's what happened. With those kind of returns. Well, the, because, 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 of the, because of the knowledge that within four or five years after the opening of construction, you would have an established penetrated system with reasonable cash flow that could support all the loans as long as you could get through the first couple of years. And as I remember, most loans had a... Uh, a moratorium on principal payment for the first three to five years. That was the idea. That was the feature of it. It was great lending for an industry like cable. And it was a pity that the people who engineered it, Milken and his people, became so vilified for their takeovers and, and, and hung up on, and, on the things that the government alleged, uh, most of which they couldn't prove, but they finally were able to sentence him uh, uh, in order to end that era. And of course blamed the SNL crisis on him because he had used SNL investments to make the loans to the cable operators. Well, prior to that was the era of the conglomerate, too. And I remember Golf and Western, I think, was in the cable business for some time. That's right. Who was financing them, do you remember? 
No, that, uh, uh, you know, there was a conglomerate yes. that had a lot of pockets. And, um, and they were able to dabble in cable and, and media. And uh, uh, it wasn't, uh, that was that, that conglomerate era of 1968 that Nixon brought to an end when he came into, uh, into uh, the administration uh, is, uh, is one that was very short and very disappointing. But a point that I like to make is that every time any administration or any group of analysts said that debt was no good, leverage was bad, conglomeratization wasn't any good, mergers will never work. That, that every time we ever had that, you know, uh, you've seen commentators say, oh, more mergers, they're, they're not going to work. Debt has worked, leverage has worked, mergers have worked, the conglomeratization of America and the world has happened. And that's because economies of scale are necessary in order to have serious competition. And the government figured that out a few years ago. They figured out we really want lower prices for votes. <laughs> I mean, we want the consumers to be happy. And it doesn't matter if we're Democrat or Republican. We want lower prices. But you can't have lower prices if you have weak financial companies. You have to have strong financial companies. It's the economy, stupid. <laughs> it's, the, yeah, it's the economy. So you're eventually going to have Time and Warner go together, and you're going to have Viacom and CBS go together, and you're going to have much larger companies battling for market share because they need the economic base in order to fight the battle. And, and it was inevitable. Back in 1974 and 5, there were no deals in media. This is the area that I cover. The broadcasters weren't merging and the cable guys weren't merging. Everybody was financially immature. Nobody wanted to give up his stock yet because it was all venture cap stuff. They thought that the future was ahead and they were right. Mergers began in earnest in 1977. And we are now uh, 22 years later. And in 22 years, we've had whatever, half of every industry has consolidated or more until you get these telephone-looking uh, type industries where you have uh, a 5 to 10 or 12 large companies that dominate and a bunch of other companies that have niches uh, within that universe. The, the, uh, the, the content for cable was always HBO you know, and Showtime and, um, and then the movie channel and Cinemax. That was, the, that was cable content besides the, uh, uh, the over-the-air uh, signals and distance signals. But it was clear in this uh, post-Vietnam era of increased cable networks, originating networks, that there was a demand, there was a need for new specialized services that cable could uniquely carry. And uh, thanks to people like uh, Ted Turner and um, uh, Getty Oil and Bill Rasmussen and the other people who started ESPN uh, and, uh, and, and many of the other uh, uh, program-oriented people in the media, you had this rush to put cable networks on. The uh, cable networks had their own terrible startup period from, let's say, 1979 until uh, 1982 uh, uh, through the crash. On Into the 85-86 period, they turned the corner. And they were like a true venture capital companies. There's six years of blood, sweat, and tears followed by six months of utter euphoria when you make it. And it used to be you got an IPO. You went public after six years and six months. But in the case of these companies, they didn't go public. They just became successful. And, uh, and thanks to the, uh, the, the cooperation and the patience of the cable operators who were willing to pay them for their programming, even though they were selling advertising, and that was because at first they weren't selling advertising, but even when they were, they continued to pay them. And uh, thanks to things like um, uh, uh, the cable operators bailing Ted Turner out of his uh, acquisition. Primarily of, Malone. Uh, Malone and, and Time Warner. Well, Malone led the way and, and got all the cable operators together and said, look, if Ted isn't uh, financed, then Kirk Kerkorian is going to own his network and CNN, and we would all rather work with Ted. So they raised about $550 million, which was a huge amount of money. And many of the operators weren't sure it was ever going to work out. And it turned out to be a fabulous investment, as have so many other uh, cable networks. The, um, uh, these networks came along uh, in the, uh, uh, throughout the 80s and established themselves. And it was fascinating to see that despite the fact that their share uh, was no more than a quarter or a half of a point, the cumulative viewing 
tendency to keep tuning into CNN or to keep tuning into ESPN was making up for the fact that their share was so low. Cumulative audience was, was what counted. And people got used to watching it. Uh, an interesting sidelight about the cable industry was that the networks were slow in developing, slower than they should have been, because the advertising community lived in the biggest okay. markets. Yeah, and numbers. And they Rich. didn't see cable. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until Bob Rosencrantz, uh, Chuck Dolan, and others who built the metropolitan New York area and put cable into Connecticut and into Westchester County where the advertising agency people lived that they finally woke up to what it was all about and that would be uh, in the early to mid 80s. And they came to understand it. So in the second half of the 80s, they began to get advertising and people began to support what they were doing. Um, the audiences were there, but, but, they, but, but the ad agencies hadn't developed yet. Um, by the time you get to 1990, which is, we were talking before about the credit crunch of 1990, the credit crunch was exacerbated by Saddam Hussein's attack on Kuwait. They seemed to be two totally unrelated situations that converged. That was the real first convergence <laughs> that, we, that we had in this business. And uh, in October of 1990, the world went to hell in a handbasket and uh, junk bonds collapsed uh, more so than ever before. And that's when you could buy these portfolios with these high yields. Uh, you had a situation that was fascinating for American and world history and media history. It was so scary to so many people. And if you remember the dates, um, the, the Russian Revolution was the fall of 89. And the Iron Curtain was coming down. The Berlin Wall came down. But in October of 90, it wasn't such a fait accompli that the public didn't worry that maybe the Russians would come in on the side of the Arabs and we'd have World War III. I remember that very well. This is why everyone's um, uh, momentum stopped. And uh, as we prepared to bomb Baghdad in January of 1991, ac world activity had come almost to a stop. There was fear of Arab terrorism. There was fear of World War III. There was fear of everything. People stopped shopping. People stopped traveling. It was really, really scary. It was very similar to the, the darkness of 74 when without the oil, people stopped driving. You couldn't go anywhere because you couldn't, it wasn't, it was too expensive. You couldn't get it. And, and, uh, and what happened next? On the eve of, of the bombing of Baghdad, everything stopped. They call it the bottom of the market. Uh, in fact, the actual bottom of the prices was in October. But, but nobody was playing. And we bombed Baghdad. And everyone watched it on television because of cable, CNN. because of Ted Turner and CNN with the, with the announcers stationed in Baghdad, with Bernard Shaw and, and John Holloman and uh, Peter Arnett were all stationed there reporting directly under the bombs. Uh, my conclusion or my analysis of the situation as I looked back on it was that the awesome technology that we put into place, both in communications of the war and the prosecution of the war, this pinpoint bombing business, mm -hmm. uh, so enraptured America that it went on a technology buying binge. Did you ever determine what AT&T paid per subscriber for uh, TCI? Oh, sure. We, we actually focused more on the um, uh, uh, multiple, multiple cash, cash flow. flow. You know, our numbers at the time were about about 13 and a half times uh, year ahead cash flow. Is that all? Uh, well, they, they got in cheap. I mean, it's always the best time to buy a cable system is yesterday. Oh, yeah. Second best time is today, and the worst time is tomorrow. As, as each of the uh, guys who bought it, Paul Allen bought cable systems for uh, uh, for $2,700 or $3,000 a sub, and people said they were too expensive, and, and they turned out to be cheap. It's interesting to know that the AT&T TCI deal is now ancient history. Yeah. <laughs> we've, uh, we've come a, a long way, baby. Uh, to, to understand what happened, we should uh, tack on one more piece of history. The, uh, the rate re-rake uh, did, uh, did its work in 92. 92. 90, uh, 90, well, the bill was 92. It did its work in 94, 95. 
by 96, uh, uh, the, the industry was, was improving again and it was increasing rates and adding services. But something else came on. You know, this is an industry that was, that was brutalized by the credit crunch. And then it was brutalized by the rate re-regulation. And you would think after those two battles, it was entitled to a rest, but it didn't get it. Because in early 1996, AT&T, of all companies, bought 2% of DirecTV, which was the satellite competitor. And with that, the um, uh, Wall Street's um, anxiety about cable sanctity came back again. Uh, they learned to live with the rate uh, re-reg, and they learned to live with the uh, the new balance sheets from the credit crunch. Now they had to learn to live with the satellite threat. And all through 96, cable uh, stocks uh, languished because of that. Uh, it was compounded by the resurrection of the notion of the Death Star, which was the satellite deal of all time to come and clobber the cable operators, and this one was going to be from Rupert Murdoch. It was called A Sky B because he had B Sky B in England and he was going to call the American one A Sky B. And it was going to come in and on top of DirecTV and on top of Echo Star, it was going to rain signals down on America. Um, in, in February of 1997, and this is really this period of February to April of 97, uh, is another cornerstone of uh, cable's history. Um, in February of 97, News Corp, Murdoch's company, holds a press conference uh, with analysts. It's not a press, well, it was both, press conference and analyst meeting uh, in Los Angeles in which they announced their A-Sky-B plans, a merger with EchoStar to make this all-powerful uh, competitor to DirecTV and to the cable industry. And in that uh, uh, meeting, uh, they warn a cable that they're sending Dr. Kevorkian to come and get you. And... Uh, and, you know, they're basically saying you need euthanasia because you've had it. The, the day they did that, the average cable stock dropped 5% in one day, which is a huge drop uh, in, in any index. And, uh, and the feeling on Wall Street was numb about cable because it was just one too many antagonistic stories. And uh, soon thereafter, the, the talks between EchoStar and, and Murdoch began to sputter and they weren't able to pull off their deal. Murdoch began to talk to Malone and others in the cable industry about carrying his cable channels. And lo and behold, uh, by the spring, by late April, it, uh, A-Sky-B was a dead issue, and, and Murdoch was, um, uh, the Death Star was a thing of the past. Echo Star was still around, DirecTV was still around, they were competitors. AT&T pulled out of DirecTV. Murdoch pulled out, of, of DBS, and um, and the regulation was now uh, a distant memory because we didn't have that anymore. And I remember we were at a conference, and I and and others at, at, at my spring cable conference in 1997, the phrase on Wall Street is pounding the table to say that you in Wall Street who were not paying attention, you're missing the point that with the regulation abated, with the Death Star threat abated, um, and Murdoch now a pal of the cable industry because he wants his networks carried, cable's got a really bright future ahead of it. Uh, they still didn't fully believe it because the stock prices only jiggled up a little bit in April and May of 97, and, and then in June of 97, Microsoft invested a billion dollars in Comcast ball game. Okay, the, the Microsoft investment so validated the cable platform as the convergent platform of the future, the broadband cable, that everyone began to get on board. The, and the same day that he did that, uh, TCI did a deal with Cablevision in which they swapped uh, a, a, a whole bunch of subscribers for a third of uh, Cablevision's company. That deal woke up a lot of people as to value because both TCI subs and Cablevision stock were deeply discounted in that deal, and it made it look like they were both doing a bad deal. One was selling cash flow for six times. The other one was selling stock for $32 a share. Everybody knew both were too low. And when they woke up to it, they realized something which both Chuck Dolan and, and John Malone understood, that, uh, that they were going to, in unison, 
in this new, better era, lift their values. And they weren't fighting each other. They were actually going to help each other develop. And, and, and so the cable stocks took off. And uh, they began to rise. And it was uh, not long thereafter that Mike Armstrong left Hughes. Uh, AT&T got out of DirecTV. And he, uh, and, and he commenced discussions with John Malone about, uh, about their merger, which was announced in June of 98, one year after the Microsoft investment. And you, that brings us to the question you brought up about mergers. The, uh, the AT&T deal uh, changed the cable landscape forever because it, it involved changing technology, adding, adding telephone directly into the cable mix, something that was being done in England but had not really been carried over the U.S. except by Cox, which was a lone voice in the cable universe saying we really ought to be in the phone business. In Omaha. And in Omaha and in, uh, and in in San Diego and other systems, uh, too, soon thereafter. Um, it, it introduced uh, the real telephone, uh, wired, wireless combination story. Uh, it introduced uh, a new uh, phase of interactivity and, and uh, all, all versions of broadband development. And, and it made people realize, wait a minute, uh, we have to be larger as well. It had a similar effect as when Time and Warner merged mm -hmm. years before. I mean, that eventually led to Viacom buying Paramount and, and Disney buying ABC and these other mega media mergers. And, uh, uh, and, and that's what the, the impact, if AT&T was going to have a position, then everyone else had to line up with, either with them or with partners. And, and the, the, it, it spurred the further consolidation, what some people call the ultimate consolidation uh, of the cable industry. This has been an interesting session. We've covered everything from the very early days of the financial history of cable television up to the present merger state. Uh, today's date is October 5, 1999. We are conducting this interview in the offices of uh, Paul Kagan Associates. My name is Jim Keller, the interviewer. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. You've been listening to Cable's Financial DNA, part of the Cable Center's podcast series, Stories from the Head End. For the Cable Center, I'm Diane Christman. The Cable Center is a nonprofit industry organization that connects people and ideas to advance innovation. Today's podcast was produced by the Cable Center and made possible through generous underwriting provided by the Cable TV pioneers. Supervising producer and writer is Leela Kakoris. Please join us again soon.